If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 11? We're going to read something that, even if you don't normally go to church, you've probably heard before. And if you do normally come to church, you've probably heard it many, many times. But it's fantastic uh, nonetheless. And that's one of the reasons why you've heard it so often. Uh, we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer uh, this morning and learn to pray from the Master, literally. So let's read Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine's arrived on a journey and I've got nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, don't bother me. The door's shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you that we won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend. Yet because of his shamelessness, he'll rise and give him everything he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the word of God. The Lord's Prayer might be the most famous form of words in human history. I can't think of a paragraph. There might be one, but I can't think of a paragraph length bit of words that would have been said out loud as many times in the history of the human race as the Lord's Prayer in more languages, in more centuries, in more countries. And that amazing familiarity we have is in some ways a great blessing and privilege because it means that it's a common form of words that actually will connect with all kinds of people who at the moment are not followers of Jesus, including probably some of you. You'll know it and you'll think, yeah, that's familiar. I kind of get the idea. That's a real blessing. That's great. But there is a downside as well. There's a problem with the familiarity we have with the Lord's Prayer, which is it's so well known that once people start saying it, sometimes even when we start saying it, our mind just zones out. And it becomes like the humming of the fridge that when you first move into a house, you notice going, and you think that's kind of annoying. But after a little while of living there, you don't notice it anymore. And you stop realizing that you're, that with the Lord's Prayer, you, you go, I know, I'm a brother. And you just say it like, and it doesn't catch your heart. And that familiarity can be really unhelpful. So what I wanted to do in this message is to do something that we don't normally do here. Um, and to use, a, to basically go back in time to help us look at the Lord's Prayer in a completely different way. That I hope will help many of you engage with this prayer in a fresh way. I want to help you look at it from a new angle, hopefully be freshly inspired and equipped by it, but to travel back in time 1,600 years to North Africa and to see the Lord's Prayer through new eyes, through a correspondence that takes place between two individuals, one of whom you might have heard of, the other one of which you probably haven't. Let me tell you a story, and this is a true story, right? So Anisha is the mother of four children. 
right? This isn't a picture of her, because most women in the ancient world, we don't have pictures of them. Um, but this is a woman from a similar part of the world in a similar period, and she may have looked a bit like this. But Anisha is the mother of four children, three boys and a girl, and she has already lost her husband. So she's a widow with four kids, and her full name was Anisha Faltonia Proba. But I thought that sounded a little bit Monty Python, so I just thought, let's just stick with Anisha for now, probably helpful. And she came to Christ in her city, which was Rome, in the late 4th century. She becomes a believer in Jesus, but in 410, the city of Rome is sacked by the Visigoths. It's actually one of the great crisis moments in the history of Western Europe, because it shapes everything. That, the end of the Roman Empire begins there, and everything since has flowed out of that. And as a result of the sack of Rome, Anisha flees from Rome to North Africa with her daughter-in-law and her granddaughter. So there's three of them. And they immediate, almost immediately get captured by the local governor. And although some of the texts say imprisoned, but basically they're held to ransom, like they're held hostages, because Anisha's from a very wealthy family. And so she and her daughter-in-law and granddaughter are held to ransom, and the corrupt local governor, who we know about from other sources, is not a, not a nice guy, drunkard, bit of a devious so-and-so. Anyway, captures these women and eventually lets them out on the payment of a huge sum. Because she's from a wealthy family, her family have possessions in Asia. And she sells her inheritance, the, as in possessions meaning estates and land, she sells it in order to be able to give to the church and give to the poor. She is a remarkable woman of faith, this lady. And in 412, two years after arriving in Africa, she receives a very important letter from a local African bishop. The African bishop's name is Augustine, and you might know him as Saint Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, or you might not know him at all. And in 412, he, he is the writer of this letter to Anisha. Now, Augustine, who we know a lot more about, and we don't know that he looked like that, because, of course, again, no paintings or pictures, but he, we know that he was his parents were Berbers, and he is from this part of the world, and so he probably looked a bit like that. And he, when he was a young man, he was, I think it'd be fair to say, he lived a colorful life, right? So when somebody's called saint something, you assume that they've always been a very godly person. And in fact, a lot of people tell their story in a way that makes it sound like they've always been a good person. Augustine is not one of those people, right? He basically trashes his life as a young man in a very, very famous book that he wrote called The Confessions, in which he describes basically what an awful person he, thinks he, he now thinks he used to be. Um, but he tells stories of stealing, of looking for you know, redemption and hope, and like looking for a fun life in travel, of becoming part of a weird philosophical cult, and then looking for uh, enlightenment in philosophy. He was a very sexually promiscuous young man. He had sex with a lot of people. And he just kind of, he lived a very colorful life. One of his most famous lines, a lot of us may have heard this before or something like it, that he, as an old man, he looks back to his youth and says, I used to pray, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. That is, Lord, I want to be sexually pure, but not right now. Right? That's, the, that's what he prayed. So that gives you a measure of what he was like as a young man. But he goes on a remarkable spiritual journey, and it totally changes his life through a combination of some stuff he reads from what I would call something prophetic that happens to him, from the reading of the Bible, and from a... a sort of older mentor called Ambrose of Milan and from a friend of his who was also going on a spiritual journey, he ends up coming to Jesus and he gets saved. And it completely changes his life in such a radical way that he leaves behind his, all his old philosophy and says, this is just rubbish, I don't believe this at all. He becomes celibate, so he doesn't say, oh, I've had sex with a lot of people, now it's time to settle down with one woman. He says, 
I am not going to have sex ever again. I'm going to become a celibate single man and I'm going to live in faithful celibacy for the rest of my life. And he becomes a bishop of Hippo, which is a town in northern Africa. These days, it's the city of Anaba in Algeria. And he becomes the bishop. He becomes the most significant philosopher-theologian in the history of Africa. I would say he's the most significant philosopher-theologian in the history of the world. I mean, just one, his, I think his greatest lines comes in the opening page of the Confessions. A friend of mine has got it tattooed on his forearm. I think if you're going to get a tattoo, it's a good one to have. And he just writes this beautiful line. He says, you made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And it's a lovely line because it's not just a nice saying. That's his story. He's like, I've done that. I was a restless soul. I looked for it in money and power and education and sex and philosophy and travel. I did everything, and I was restless. I wasn't at peace. Some of it's fun, but I didn't find peace until I came to Jesus, and I found rest in the Lord. He's an amazing guy. And like Anisha, he sold a lot of his possessions and gave it away to the church. And in 412, he wrote a letter to this lady, Anisha, about the Lord's Prayer. Because she had been asking him, Bishop, could you tell me how do I pray and what kind of person do I need to be as I pray? And the result, Augustine's response, is one of the great treatments of the Lord's Prayer in the history of the church. And I think it will help you, which is why I'm going to spend a bit longer looking at this thing today. Because I think we, many of us know the Lord's Prayer very well. And I think this letter will help you see it in a new way, which is why I'm going to suggest we look for his help on it. He covers a lot in the letter, but I'm going to break it down into looking at the what, the why, and the how of prayer. What do you pray for? Why do you pray? How do you pray? And in his answers, he's, he's great. He brings each time, he brings the answer back to the Lord's Prayer. So the what of prayer, he starts with something that will sound strange to you, and you might think that is a bad answer. That's wrong, right? I think if we think about it, it's actually quite profound. But he's... She's effectively said, what am I supposed to pray for? And Augustine's answer starts like this. A short answer to your difficulty is this, he says. Pray for a happy life. That's what everybody wishes to have. And you think, that's not a very spiritual answer. What do you mean, pray for a happy life? Anybody could do that. That's not what I'd expect a bishop to say. Sounds very selfish. But when you pause for a moment and think about it, it actually becomes quite profound as he explains what he means. It's a very real place to start. Right? What do I pray for? Pray for a happy life. You think, well, that's exactly what I would want you to say in a way. It starts where I already am. Because all of us want to be happy. And we tend to make decisions that we think will make us happy. So Augustine says, start there. Don't start with high spiritual things that you think you ought to want, but you don't really. Start by praying, Lord, I want a happy life. That's he says, begin there. And it's actually very childlike and winsome. But it's also very biblical. Because if you read the Psalms or Paul's letters, you'll find people continually praying for or celebrating joy, right? At your, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forever. And they text like that all across the Bible. In other words, it is right for human beings to seek joy, to look to be happy. That's not something God's going, oh, I don't like you guys being happy. I just want you to be miserable, holy people. And Augustine's saying, no, you've got to pray for a happy life. But he knows that when you say pray for a happy life, some of us will say, ah, that's it, I can pray for all of the selfish, wrong stuff that I want, ha, ha, ha. And Augustine says, yeah, I'm not going to let you off that easy. I want you to pray for a happy life, but I also want you to understand where true happiness is actually found. Because if you don't understand that, you won't actually get a happy life. 
You'll think that happiness is found in all. So what he does is he goes through a bunch of good things, food, shelter, family, friendship. And he says, those are all fine. They're all good. They're gifts of God. But is that it? Is that the sum total of the things that will make you happy? He says, of course it isn't. Those things are means of joy, but they're not the end. They're not the, the place where you actually find the joy. They're things that point you towards the place you find the joy. He says, if you really want a happy life, you're going to have to find it in God. We will find our rest in you. In fact, the Lord's Prayer shows us the fundamental shape of human happiness. I just thought this was so amazing when I first came across it in him. I thought, I've never thought about that. The Lord's Prayer doesn't start with material good things, like give us today our daily bread. And the Lord's Prayer doesn't start with physical safety or spiritual safety, like deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer doesn't start with us at all. Those things come much later in the prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts with God. The first half of the prayer is all you, you, you. Your, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Before we get anywhere near the things I need, it's like it's teaching us something about the shape of human happiness in that sense. It's saying if you want a happy life, you want to pray like this. Because actually what it'll do is direct your eyes away from the things that you get preoccupied with, which might well be good, onto the things that's actually going to satisfy the demands, the cry of your soul. American pastor Tim Keller illustrates this using a, talks about, so imagine my three-year-old boy Sam, he's playing with a toy truck and it breaks. And he's just wailing, right? He's inconsolable because his toy is broken. Ah, calamity. All kids do it. And I come up to him and I try and comfort him with the news. I said, don't worry, Sam, don't worry about the truck because an elderly relative of ours has recently died and they've left you a million pounds. Is that going to stop him crying about the truck? No, of course it isn't. If you ever met a three-year-old, you know that. Because the three-year-old doesn't understand, they're not mature enough yet to understand that the inheritance is much bigger than the truck. So they just go, oh, oh, inconsolable. And Augustine is basically saying, you and I are just like that child. We need to be taught that the thing that we think is going to make us happy is actually very small in comparison with the enormous glories that are, to come, that are ours in Christ. But if you don't know that, and you need to be trained to learn it, if you don't know it, you will end up looking for happiness in the wrong place. So what you need to do is let the Lord's Prayer lead you up to where true joy is found, the Father in heaven, the Dad without limits. The eternal God who will satisfy the fount of everything good, the fountain of life. And as you find that in him, you'll then be in a much better position to pray for the other things that you need. I've experienced the exact same thing myself. Right? And the darkest period of my life was seven, six, seven years ago when both of my children were it's called regressing. They were losing skills because of their combination of autism and epilepsy and all sorts of things they had. My daughter has childhood disintegrative disorder, which basically means that she's way behind developmentally now, age nine, where she was when she was two. And unless God breaks in, will remain that way for the rest of her life. And it's just, it was really horrible. We were just seeing our kids going backwards. And it was just so, it was awful. And I had a day when I went out to go and pray for them. I just like, Rachel, I just want to spend the morning praying in the woods. And so I went to a woods near my house called Abbott's Wood, and I went walking around just looking to pray. And I thought, I know, I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. I spent four hours wandering in the woods. I got completely lost. I still, to this day, we go there all the time. I've never found the part of the woods I ended up in. Woods are like that. You just get lost. You know, Where on earth is this with my dog? But I spent four hours there praying, and I didn't get out of the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Not because I'm a spiritual person, but because 
God came to me in that time, and I spent four hours simply, I started with our Father. And as I began to think about God's heavenly fathering of me and pray back to him who he was and then talk about his name and his kingdom and his will, I honestly, I ran out of time before I got to the second half. Now, since that day, I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn, I have prayed a lot for my kids, and I still do, and you should. But it taught me something that day, long before I came across Augustine's letter, that actually I think Augustine is trying to teach us too, which is that when you allow the Lord's Prayer to rightly order what you want, you will find it points you to where a happy life is truly found, not in a lot of the truck, but in the massive inheritance you've been given. The what of a happy life of prayer, I think, is you pray for a happy life. Another question that often comes up is why? So why should you pray? You know, what's the point in praying, particularly if Luke 11 is true? Right? The passage we've just read makes it very clear that our Father is going to give us what we need. Right? He will give us bread if we're hungry in the middle of the night. He, if we ask him for a fish, will give us a fish, not a snake. He will not give us a scorpion if we ask for an egg, and so on. And God knows everything, and he's a generous, good father. So if God already knows what you need, and he's committed to give you what you need, what on earth is the point in praying for it? That's the question some of us probably ask a lot. Well, I think there are two really good answers to that question. Right? One of them is John Wesley's answer, which is that God has so bound himself so as to do nothing on earth except in response to prayer. That what God's done is to set the world up in such a way that he won't do the things that he's planning to do until people pray for them and release it because he wants us to get to partner with him in the work. Right? This is a great, you might have seen this little gif meme thing going around online a couple of weeks ago. I just really thought it was great. But um, if you see this, this is a great illustration of the relationship between me and God in achieving God's purposes in the world through prayer. So just have a little look. Nope, not that. This. Okay, that's me, and God is the dad. <laughs> and that's basically what happens, right? That is the story of how you and I partner with God, right? I'm praying. It's all right. I couldn't, God couldn't do this without me. Look at me. Oh, face plant. Okay, yeah, back up again. But parents do that all the time, don't you? You know, if you've ever tried to unload a dishwasher with a three-year-old, that it makes it much slower and much more likely to break stuff than if, they, if you do it on your own. But you do it with them anyway because you want them to get to partner with you in what you're achieving. And Wesley's answer to the question, why do you pray, is because God wants you to be able to be part of what he's doing. So he's set the world up so that prayer becomes the means of achieving what he's going to do. That's one answer to the question, why? But the other answer is Augustine's answer in his letter to Anisha. He says, we pray so that we may be helped to consider and observe what we are asking not in order to give God information or persuade him to agree with us, Augustine says. So the reason you pray is to shape and reinforce your own desires, not to tell God stuff that he doesn't know. So when I go to God in prayer and say, Lord, this has happened in my life, please break in, it's not like God goes, oh, did it? I'm, I missed that, sorry. Gosh, I don't know how that happened. That's not what happens. But in the act of praying to him, I am partnering with him in resolving the problem and seeing the kingdom come. But I'm also, in bringing my request before him, shaping my own desires and lining them up with his purposes. Here's how Augustine explains it. He says, when we say, hallowed be your name, we are reminding ourselves to desire that his name, which is always holy, may be esteemed as holy among men, not despised. This isn't for God's benefit, but for ours. 
Right? God's name is holy whether I notice it or not, he's saying. I need my desire to be focused again on the hallowing of the name of God. He goes on. When we say your kingdom come, which will certainly come whether we want it to or not, we stir up our own desires for that kingdom so that it may come to us and so we may be found worthy to reign in it. He goes on. When we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray for ourselves that he'd give us the grace of obedience that we may do his will in the same way as the angels do in the heavenly places. I think that's so wise. And he goes on like that all the way through. He says, we are praying the Lord's Prayer not to give God information he doesn't already have, but partly to catch ourselves up in the desires and the purposes of God. And I have found that each time I've come to one of these 21 days prayer meetings. I found myself, do you do, do, you do this? You come and you think, I know I ought to want that thing, but right now I don't really. I'm distracted with that or this or the other. And you come into a prayer meeting and you're asked to pray the things that God says, pray like this, and you find your heart rising with desire for the thing he tells you to want. It's an amazing gift. I had it, I was, you know, Faria, who was leading worship with us this morning, and she was just very near me in the prayer meeting, one of the early ones, and there was just a sort of lull in the music at one point, and I just heard her crying out, hallelujah, 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 just like, and everyone in the room would have heard her doing it, and I just caught my heart, and I was like, yes, I want the God to be praised, I want him to be praised, and it just caught something in me, and you begin praying it too alongside, and the room begins to rise in prayer, and you think, what's happening there is God is shaping my desires, he's using prayer as a means of changing what I want, and that's one of the reasons we pray. God has set up the world so that as we pray, like a kid shoveling snow, we get to do things alongside our Father. And he's also set things up so that prayer shapes and reinforces our own desires. So the what of the Lord's prayer is you pray for a happy life. And the why is it shapes you as you pray. And finally, Augustine comes to the how. How do you pray? And I think this is the most remarkable thing Augustine says to Anisha. And it's a quote, probably some of you will hear it and disagree with it, I expect. He says, whatever other words we say, if we pray properly, we say nothing except what is already in the Lord's Prayer. Which is a bit of a mic drop moment. He just sort of walk, leaves you thinking about that for a minute. Is that true? Do I believe that? He says, if you pray properly, everything you pray is already in the Lord's Prayer. What he means, as he explains it, is that the Lord's Prayer is such a sweeping, comprehensive prayer, and it represents the heart of God so fully that all of the requests and intercessions that you legitimately have are basically just riffing off that one prayer. And flipping it around, Augustine says, yeah, and if you find you're praying something and it's not anything like anything in the Lord's Prayer, then it might not be unlawful, but it isn't spiritual, and you shouldn't be praying it. Now, this might sound a bit extreme. But he makes a really good case. He points to the various kinds of prayers you find in Scripture, and then he shows that all of them are basically expanding on one or more of the things the Lord's Prayer contains. So this is what he says. For example, when someone prays, be glorified among all nations as you were glorified among us, what are they praying but, hallowed be your name? I did this experiment just a minute ago in Beckenham. I was preaching and I just went, you've just been doing that. And I, I wasn't even in the worship time and that's what you were just doing. And I thought, this is a risk. So I just looked at the iPad, which the song worship leaders have, with what songs on the iPad. And it comes up and it goes, what a beautiful name. I was like, that's it. That's all you've been doing. You've been basically praying, hallowed be your name in different words, haven't you? That's what we've just been doing in our song time. 
When someone says, turn to us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved, what are they praying but, let your kingdom come? When someone says, give me neither poverty nor riches, what are they praying but, give us today our daily bread? When someone says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God, rescue from those who rise up against me, what else is this but, deliver us from evil? If you go over the word of all the holy prayers, I believe you'll find nothing which can't be summed up in the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Sorry, I think we got the first half of that and not the second half of that. But anyway, he carries on roughly as I've just said. He's saying, I think you will find the same thing if you were to come to all 21 days of the prayer we've been doing here, is that the things we've been asking God for are fundamentally the same things that are contained in those six or seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer. We praise God. We ask for his kingdom to break in in the earth. We ask for provision for our needs. We confess our sin. We forgive other people. We ask for deliverance from sin, temptation, and evil, and the devil. And then we celebrate the kingdom of God. So if you've ever wondered if it's okay to pray for something, that principle will really help you. Do you ever do you ever do that? Do you ever pray? Do you kind of, I want to pray for that. Am I allowed to? Is that right? Or is that not a good prayer? You might wonder that. Some of us are too spiritual. No, I only ever pray things in the Lord's Prayer. Some of us wonder that sometimes. And this is a really good rule of thumb to test whether it's a good prayer or not. Is it in the Lord's Prayer? Right? So should you pray for a promotion? I think it depends. Because if the reason you want the promotion has nothing to do with the Lord's Prayer, you shouldn't pray for it. You might want a promotion because you think, actually, this is going to get me more money or more power or it might improve my sex life. I don't know. It could be all kinds of things. You think, in the end, I might be asking for a promotion in service of another God. Or you could say, I want to pray for a promotion because I want kingdom influence. I want the kingdom of God through me to be extended into the world, and I also want to be able to shape this company or organization in a godly direction. And for righteousness' sake, I want the ability to give more money away. I want to serve more people. by, And you, and you do it like that. You think, of course you should pray for it. Because that's the kingdom of God. That, that is what the Lord's prayer is shaping you to do. Do you see that it tells you, it helps you, this principle, whether or not to pray something. So I've concluded there are some things in my life that I really want that I should pray for because they're in the Lord's prayer. And there's some things in my life I really want and I shouldn't pray for them and they're not in the Lord's prayer. So I really want my children to be healed. And I should pray for that because it says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and in heaven there is no sickness. So I know I should pray for that. And in fact, I should keep praying for it until I get it. And if I don't get it, I don't understand and I trust God, but I should pray for it. On the other hand, there's other things that I want that I shouldn't pray for because they're not in the Lord's Prayer. I really want Liverpool to win the league, right? <laughs> Now, there are people, genuinely, like in America every year at the Super Bowl time, the American communi Christian community has a bit of a debate about whether you should pray for who's going to win. But I've concluded that with one important exception, praying for Liverpool to win is not in the Lord's Prayer. The important exception is this afternoon, they're praying Man United. That is deliver us from evil, right? That is, there's no question that that's something. You're right, Leo, <laughs> right? But generally speaking, I've concluded that there might be something I want and I might want it quite, even for fun, but I might really quite strongly want it. But it isn't actually a kingdom purpose for me to pray, and I shouldn't pray for it. That's, so Augustine's saying, how do you pray? You pray what's in the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you're new to kings, I just want to say, we don't normally do this. We don't normally take a figure from church history and study them in this kind of detail. I, as I said at the start, the reason I wanted to do it is because I think Augustine can help us see this very familiar passage through new eyes. But we don't believe this letter is the inspired word of God. What Jesus says, 
is the word of God, not what Augustine says, and I trust we know that. But it can be helpful, I think, particularly when that person's from a very different culture. They can show us things that we might otherwise miss. And if you read his letter, which is, you can read online, you'll see it's full of quotations from Scripture to try and back up what he's saying. Now, I hope you'll find that that treatment of the Lord's Prayer helps you pray it for yourselves in a richer and deeper way. What do you pray for? A happy life, which is ultimately found in God. Why do you pray? To partner with God, like a child shoveling snow, and also to shape and reinforce your own desires. And how do you pray? By riffing off the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to finish by doing that. We're going to stand. If, you, if you're able to do that, if you want to stand, get to your feet. We're going to do the Lord's Prayer three ways as we conclude the meeting, okay? We're going to pray it all together, like a bit of liturgy, just use the words and declare to God what we, these, this form of words. Then we're going to sing it, and Neil and the band are going to lead us in that. And then thirdly, Steve's going to get up and lead us in a time of calling out to God for a particular request in the Lord's Prayer that might have struck your heart. As we've been talking, you might have just thought, yes, I do need the Lord to deliver us from evil in this situation. Lead me not into temptation there or whatever it might be, and we'll all raise our voices in a moment. But for now, let's pray it all together, okay? This wonderful words that Jesus gave us. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.